We're going to be in James again, of course, this morning, and we'll be looking at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. In order to sort of onboard with what this text says, I wanted to tell you that there is a man named Mr. Brian Affety who one day, a couple years ago, received a letter in the mail from a law office in Brazil. And he opened it with curiosity, but a little uneasiness because I don't know if you've ever gotten a letter from a lawyer before, but it's a little unnerving and he's opening it. And to his delight, he found that there was a letter with a professional embossed letterhead explaining that he may stand to inherit up to $1.3 million. $1.3 million. I mean, that seemed too good to be true. But the letter explained that another man, a Richard Affety, so he was Brian, this is Richard, had died some months earlier in Brazil, leaving a small fortune, and they could not find any other relatives in the country of Brazil that he was attached to. So Richard's lawyer, who was settling the estate, was reaching out to Brian Affety, who shared the same unique last name with the same spelling, to tell them they could likely have the money. Well, of course, you can imagine Brian and his wife were really excited to receive this news. So Brian contacted the lawyer, and to make a long story short, the lawyer went through all the legal processes to clear Brian to have the money. But then, of course, there were some banking complications with the money going from one country to another, and there were some legal fees and taxes that had to be paid before the law office could disperse the check. And these expenses did not come all at once. You know, they sort of trickled in during the whole process. So over the course of several weeks, Brian had wired various amounts of money from his savings account to cover the upfront cost. And in all, uh, Brian had wired nearly $30,000. But that was okay because, uh, you know, this, this large check was going to come from the, all, uh, from the law office, right? I mean, you all smell what's coming, obviously. So when the envelope arrived from the Brazilian law office and Brian and his wife found the letter inside, it was not the inheritance check they were expecting. It was yet another letter explaining that even more fees were needed to cover more expenses and so forth. And it was really at this point that they began to realize the whole thing had been a lie from the very beginning. They had been scammed. They had literally wired most of their life savings to thieves somewhere in the world, ostensibly from Brazil. Now, this story is so similar to thousands of other scamming incidents that happen every day in the United States and around the world. And most of you, I think, know how scamming works. You might think that this is, you know, a lot of trouble to go through to earn just $30,000 from somebody. I mean, you could work just as long as this event took and, and maybe make that much. But what you don't realize is that these thieves are, are scamming many people at the same time. It's like a full-time job. They send out hundreds of letters or emails with different kinds of messages. And if only a small percentage of their victims uh, respond and they get to scam them, they're making a lot of money. Do you realize in the United States alone, in an average year, people are scammed out of eight and a half to ten and a half billion dollars in the United States. 
And in 2020, that number jumped to nearly $20 billion because of COVID. People were scamming with promises to sell face masks and hand sanitizer and COVID tests. And they were founding false charities to get people to give to others who had needs. And people fell for it. They gave away $20 billion to thieves. But these scammers prey on people's fears and their altruism. I mean, don't you want to protect yourself and your family? Don't you want to help others in need? I get these messages in my church email, my church email all the time. Some missionary or national pastor and his family needs help in some far-off country, and there's this big sad story, and, and, and could the church please send a couple of thousand dollars to help them get to the States and cover some medical bills? And the letter is dripping with the spiritual language, but some of the words aren't spelled right, and some of the spiritual language is just a little off, you know? And, and I, at first, I'm like, oh, my heart goes out. I want to help. And I'm like, this, this can't be true. Or get this one. I will receive an invitation to present a paper at a conference at Oxford University. I'm not making this up because they've heard of my academic work and they want me to join other PhDs in presenting our research. And the first time I received this letter, and I've received it more than once, I have to confess, I was a little bit flattered. (laughs) They know about me? (laughs) I didn't think anybody knew who I was. And and the conference is free for me to attend. Uh, There's, uh, you know, they'll take care of everything, all the food and the lodging and, and so forth. I just need to send them my credit card number because they need to get the airfare worked out and they'll take care of all of that for me. So I enter part of the letter in a Google search and sure enough, these warnings pop up, conference speaker scam. And I'm like, oh, of course, I knew that all along, you know. <laughs> but that's what scammers do. Uh, they, they target people using specific information about you from social media that they can use to play on your emotions, to play on your interests and fears and guilt. They entice you to do what they want you to do. And scammers are everywhere, preying on the vulnerable, especially the elderly. It's, it's despicable and unconscionable. But there, are, there is an even more pervasive scamming that is going on right in front of us all the time that touches every one of our lives. Not only is it more pervasive, it's more potentially devastating. No doubt already today, you may have been a victim of this potential scam. Your interests were aroused, your desires were engaged, and maybe you even took the bait. And of course, I'm speaking of the age-old scam that goes all the way back to the garden of the temptation to sin. Now, maybe you don't think of temptation in in terms of scamming. Maybe you have another picture in mind. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that what scammers do to lead you into their web is very much in line with how temptation works. And I think we can see that in our text this morning, James 1, verses 13 uh, through 16. James tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is drawn, uh, when he is lured, and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is finally grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, 
my beloved brothers. Now, we are continuing to ground the text of James in his overall letter. He's writing to the first thousands of Jewish church members who had been scattered around the empire, many of them uprooted from their homes, driven away because of persecution. And this is why the first issue he addresses in the letter is is the fact that they're suffering trials. But being as they are scattered abroad and not centrally located any longer where James and the other elders of Jerusalem can disciple them, he writes to tell them, live up to their faith in the world at large. They had embraced Jesus, their Messiah, as their Savior in the early days of the church of Jerusalem where they had been surrounded by other vibrant, faithful Jewish believers in Christ. And they had found help and encouragement. But now they had to apply that faith in a new environment, most likely in an environment that did not share their views on following God and his holiness. So James is writing to encourage them to live up to their faith, to love, to think, to act in a way that is consistent with what they say they believe, consistent with the Christ that they have embraced. In the first three sections of the letter, James has challenged them about their attitude when they face trials, their sincerity when they seek God in prayer, and their perspective on poverty and riches. That's what brought us to last week. And when he addresses each of these topics, he treats them as the well-known wisdom literature in the Old Testament, like the book of Proverbs. Wisdom tells the readers not to take one path, but to take the other. The, The path in this direction leads to life. The other path leads to death. And we have to trust God to know where the paths lead. So James reaches out to these scattered believers, many of them likely his former church members. And we would say he's reaching out to give them wisdom. And in this section that we come to this morning, James gives them wisdom concerning temptation. Here's what he tells them. He tells them to face temptation knowingly. That is, with awareness, consciously, purposefully, with eyes wide open. And I think you'll see that as we work through the text. There are at least four truths about temptation that he wants us to understand if we are going to face temptation knowingly. Let's get right to them. The first one is this, understand the reality of temptation. Understand the reality of temptation. In other words, this is something we all will face Notice the way James puts it here. Let no one say when he is tempted. And in verse 14, each person is tempted. He's speaking of a universal human experience. We are all tempted to sin. And if it's not clear enough here in James 1, Paul underscores this point in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Literally, that is not anthropinos, that is not a normal human experience in a fallen world. If you are a fallen human being this morning, which I'm guessing that probably in the neighborhood of 100% of you are, uh, you will be tempted to sin. Don't think there's something wrong with you when you're tempted. Don't think you're sinning just because you were tempted to sin. You're not. This is what happens to us 
in a fallen world. So you can imagine all the temptations that these believers may have faced. Front and center was likely the temptation to be discouraged about their situation and to complain rather than to seek God for wisdom. And when that happens, our sin nature being what it is, we can start using our trials as excuses not to follow God. But there were likely many other unholy attractions and allurements that would have captured their attention. Immorality, especially for young men, was rampant in the culture at large. In fact, in that Greek and Roman culture, it was expected that men would partake in the sexual excesses of the day. Paul is speaking primarily to men in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, for God has called us to uh, not for impurity but in holiness. But the women likewise would have been lured away by the affluence of the foreign cultures and neglect their families and immerse themselves in the finery of the day. And Paul warns about this, especially in First and Second Timothy, that, that young women might be tempted to become self-indulgent and go along gossiping from house to house, First Timothy 5. And he says in Second Timothy 3 that women can be led astray by various passions, And really the situation is not much different than today. We face the same temptations to fall into the same sins. The sins today are simply dressed up in new clothing. They appeal to our enlightened Western minds, but they're the same sins. They're age-old. Sin is a booming industry in the West for men and women. In fact, they're even called sin industries. Look that up sometime. They include the liquor business, tobacco industry, marijuana industry, and nearly half of the United States by now, almost. Pornography, gambling, even prostitution. These are multi-million, multi-billion dollar industries in our country that people run and investors profit from. And every day, in some way, there is an attempt to draw us in, to get something from us, to exploit our desires. Add to that the allurements of an affluent and progressing society, all the technological toys, the entertainment industry, the clothing styles, the different ways to get ahead and make money, some of which they're not sinful in themselves necessarily, but they always tempt our hearts away from loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because we only have so much capacity for love. We only have so much time and attention and we give, our way, give away our love to too many little things, we find we have too little left to lavish on God. And that may be the greatest sin of our age. Add to that the daily spiritual temptations to complain or to vent in anger, to lie and cheat, to be jealous, to be lazy, to waste our time on non-eternal things, to be impatient with others, and yet to be proud of ourselves. As Jerry, Jerry Bridges says in the book a lot of you have read, we condemn these sins in others, but we excuse them in ourselves. They're called respectable sins in his language. But you know, there's also the daily temptation simply to doubt God to doubt his goodness and his love and his wisdom. The outpouring of God's grace on Brandon and Larissa Woods and Eric and Kathy and Erica and Howard and all the family, it was so evident yesterday. 
at the funeral for Brandon and Larissa's little baby boy, Alan. This little boy who they said lived actively in Larissa's womb for nine months, but was literally born into heaven. The the support of those who love them, the beauty of the day, the setting of the graveside, and the beauty and strength of the truth that was sung and spoken was evidence of the mercy and kindness of God. But after the words were spoken to one another and, and the words spoken to the Lord, we watched as the family gathered around the opening that had been dug in the earth. And Brandon and Larissa, new parents, who should have been placing their infant son in a bassinet in a nursery, on either side lowered the little casket that held the lifeless body of their son in heaven, or son into the earth, with the knowledge that he was safe in the arms of the Lord. And as I watched that, it had to have been one of the most heartbreaking and yet hopeful expressions of love that I have ever seen. But don't you think at times like this, our faith can waver? That there is the temptation to become bitter at God for unfulfilled expectation and crushing disappointment and loss? There's always a discussion in the commentary literature of this passage as to whether the temptation in these verses has to do with trial. The trials that James has already been talking about in the chapter. And I would say, of course it does. Because when we are going through pain and loss and pressure and we're exhausted and we're maybe angry or devastated, we are most vulnerable to sin, especially the sin of doubting God. It's the reason we need to pray for one another. God will increase our faith through trial. I mean, seriously, I'm serious about that. We need to pray for one another that God will increase our faith through trial. It's the reason we need to pray for Brandon and Larissa right now. And it's one of the reasons we must realize that we are plagued by temptation. We are confronted with it every day. And we need to be aware. We need to face temptation knowingly, with eyes wide open, expecting it. And that begins with our understanding of the reality of temptation. But there's another truth of temptation, about temptation, that we need to understand. We also need to understand the source of temptation. Where does temptation come from? Why do we desire to do what is wrong? I mean, we know what is right. Why do we desire the wrong thing instead? Well, James tells us where temptation does not come from, and then he tells us where temptation does come from. So look at the text again. Verses 13 and 14 say, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. There's the wrong source of temptation. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is wisdom. This is allowing us to glimpse a process that we cannot see with our eyes. God's showing us the end of the path. This is God's revelation to us. Why are we tempted? Well, it's not God's fault. But James seems to think that these believers are going to accuse God of tempting them to sin. I'm being tempted by God. Now, why would James have to say that? Well, I think it's partly because of what the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, teach. In Isaiah 45, for instance, these 12 tribes scattered abroad are familiar with these verses. 
And the, the rabbis would, would discuss these. It's, it, there's a lot of discussion about them in the rabbinical literature. Isaiah says, of course, this is the voice of God. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And you might say, well, I know it does say that God creates darkness, but that doesn't necessarily mean wickedness. And calamity would just mean a dark time or a trial. And God sometimes brings trials into our lives on purpose. And it's true. The scriptures talk about that. But what you probably don't realize is that the, the word calamity that you see here is a common Hebrew word that's often used for wickedness or sin. It's a little Hebrew word, ra. I can't really even say it because I don't speak Hebrew, but it's like ra or something like that. I mean, seriously, I, I'm not making this up. Um, ra is what it is. So, so uh, there's an example that you would recognize in Genesis 2. God forbid Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and ra, evil. That's the word translated calamity here in Isaiah 45. And get this, Genesis 6-5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness, the ra of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only ra, evil, continually. We all know that verse. I could go on and on. This verse is, is this word appears so many times in the Hebrew Old Testament that I, I have, a, I have a, a database where I can look at words and it only goes me, gives me 500 words at a time. I can't even look at all of them at the same time. I didn't look at them all, by the way. I, I was like, that's two examples and that's all you need. It's everywhere. It's everywhere in the scripture. So you could read Isaiah 45 and come away thinking that God is the one who creates wickedness. In fact, in the King James, if you're using a King James Bible this morning, verse seven reads, I make peace and I create evil. However, this is not the only way to translate the word ra, and that's not just to make it sound better in Isaiah 45. For example, if you look at Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's our word ra, that, that word afflictions. And in the context of Psalm 34, David is talking about, uh, is, is not talking about being delivered from sinning, in fact, the inscription at the heading of the psalm uh, says that David is talking about his experience of being saved from his enemies. So no, the Old Testament does not teach that God tempts people to sin. He does not create sin. So if the Jewish believers are following this tradition of error, he, James wants to arrest their understanding right away and stop this idea. This is not how temptation works. And if we are tempted to sin or we are going through some real struggles in our lives because of our sin, we have no right to lay the problem at the feet of God and say in any way, God, you're responsible for this. You did this to me. Now, we might never say that, but we're really good at blame shifting. Are we not? We're really good at it. We're blame shifters. When it comes to our sin, and we can practice serious theological blame shifting, God is, after all, sovereign. He's in control of the world. He either, he either put this temptation in my path or he allowed it to happen. It didn't take him by surprise. What takes God by surprise? Therefore, it's not my fault that I sin. It's God's fault. Of course, we're fools to think this way. We're not heading down the right path. 
Yes, God knows. Of course he does. Yes, God is sovereign. Of course he is. Yes, God allowed this trial or even put this trial in my life. And this trial may be tempting me to sin. But the temptation to sin is not God's fault. God wants you to succeed in the trial. And he's given everything you need in Christ to give you that success. In fact, going back again to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, in God's sovereignty over our lives, when we are tempted, notice it is God himself who provides the way of escape. But James proves to us that God cannot tempt us to sin. Notice what he says. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In other words, God has nothing to do with evil. It's not possible for God to be tempted. God is never complicit in sin. Paul calls him the God who cannot lie. John says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Habakkuk is puzzled by God's allowing the enemies of God to conquer Jerusalem. And the the prophet of God says, your eyes are too pure to look at evil and you cannot do wrong. And that's true. And if only our God cannot be touched by evil, if he's the only one who cannot participate in sin, then it is an impossibility for him to cause sin by trying to get his people to sin. I mean, can you even imagine that? God, who has given us everything in Christ, who's united us with his son, do you think he's going to turn around and try to get us to sin against him? It's unthinkable. God is not the source of temptation. Well, what is the source of temptation then? Well, that's easy. The devil made me do it, right? Because being the good blame shifters that we are, if we're not going to pin it on God, then we have to pin it on something. Why not our arch enemy? He's evil through and through. Now, I know this is going a little bit outside of the text, but we should realize something about the devil. He is not omnipresent. You realize that, right? True, he's active in the world, and he is wicked beyond imagination. He wants nothing more right now. He's, he's working right now to oppose and frustrate the plan of God and to lead God's children into rebellion. That's all he's ever doing. He hates us. He wants the world to be in flames. That's all true. But he's not omnipresent. He's not all-knowing. He cannot touch you anyway because John tells us in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Besides that, my theology professor in seminary once told us that the devil doesn't bother with most Christians anyway because they're already doing what the devil wants them to do. Uh, and, and, and when he, he said this, he was commenting on this passage in James chapter 1. When he made that remark, he was looking at these words that say, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word desire can simply mean an eagerness for something, but in context where sin is being discussed, it means an eagerness for the wrong thing. It is an affection for the wrong thing. We could translate it lusts. This desire is not outside of us. It is inside of us. God is not causing us to sin. The devil is not making us do it. We cannot even blame sin on other people or anything that is outside of ourselves. The dirty little secret is, when we sin, it's because we want to sin. And the entrance to sin is temptation, which plays upon our desires, which scams us. 
Now, having the desire itself is not a sin. I think you know that. Especially if we have to say no, if we say no to those desires, we're not, we're not sinning just because we have the temptation. But if you keep reading, it is only when desire conceives that it gives birth to sin. There is no sin in verse 14, but there is sin in verse 15. But that brings us to the third truth that allows us to face temptation knowingly, because once James assures us of the reality of the temptation and reveals the source of temptation, he wants us to understand the dynamic of temptation. How does temptation work? That's what dynamic means, so the, the working parts of something. How does temptation work? What leads us to sin? Well, in verse 14, James tells us that each person is lured and enticed by his own desire or her own desire. That's what our desires do. They lure us off the path of God's will because they have enticed us. The word lure is to lead someone along. The word entice is like bait. It, it's something that makes us say, I want that. I want to think that way. I want to do that. And the longer we think about it, the longer we dwell on it, the stronger that urge that's why he continues in verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, when it grows up, when it becomes an adult, brings forth death. You recognize he's using the imagery of human development here. First, desire conceives. Desire becomes pregnant. There's a dynamic that takes place between our mind, what we know, and our desire, what we want. It's a progress of thinking that begins with recognizing something is wrong and then thinking, I could do that, and then I will do that. And it's only a short matter of time before the sin is committed, before it's brought forth. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. But there are actually two conceptions that take place in this story. The first takes place somewhere, I think, between the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 4. David saw the beautiful woman. I, I've actually stood on the hill. It's an archaeological site where David's house, or his palace, we might say, was located. There's a little valley below where there's a street that's running uh, this day, and, and then a neighborhood begins across the street. And you can literally look down on top of the roofs of the house. You can see exactly the, the angle that David was looking when he was looking down on the houses. And when David saw Bathsheba, his first reaction should have been to turn away. But he didn't. His desire woke up, and he looked. And he thought, and he made inquiries. And at some point in the story, he committed to fulfill his wicked desire. That was conception number one. The second conception, Bathsheba's conception, was only one of the many consequences of the first conception. 
And David's act of adultery was actually the first child that was born. Because David's desire gave birth to sin. And that sin that was born led to death. In the case of David, as you all know, the sin led to the death of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. It led to the death of the boy that was born to David and Bathsheba. God took their child as an act of judgment upon David. And there's something else. This sin should have led to David's own death. You realize that? Because when David performed these sins, they were punishable by death under the law. That's the reason. Do you know this? That when David confesses his sin in Psalm 51, a lot of you are very familiar with that wonderful psalm. David says to God, you do not desire sacrifice, else I would give it to you. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. This is because David knows there is no sacrifice for what he have done. What he has done. If you commit adultery and murder uh, uh, to cover it up, the law doesn't say how many cows and sheep you have to bring to, to sacrifice to make up for this crime. There is no sacrifice. It's death. But God was merciful to David. That's the point of Psalm 51. He forgave his sin. David says, God, if you don't forgive me, there's nothing I can do. God had to forgive him. And you might sit here and think, well, you know, my sin hasn't led to death. Your sin always leads to death. Sin must be punished by death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. When God forgives our sin, it's because someone else received the wages for our sin. Jesus Christ. You sin, and your sin brings forth his death. Don't think of your sin so lightly, so casually. When the Bible says Christ died for our sin, that's an actual trans transaction for actual sin. And then consider the fact that those who reject Christ, those who do not embrace the gospel, every sin they commit will be held against them in the judgment of eternal death. Now, I want to take this truth about the dynamic of temptation one little step further, if I can. I, I'm not going to be preaching for two Sundays. I'm going to make up for it ahead of time, okay? Just a little bit more. I, I, we can't see this dynamic that happens inside our minds when we are tempted to sin. And James here is speaking in metaphor using conception and birth and death. Is there any way that we can see a more obvious uh, process in the scripture about how this temptation works? Yes, there is. Because there are two people in human history who were tempted to sin to whom our text in James 1 did not specifically apply who were not lured away and enticed by internal sinful desire. Two people, Jesus in the wilderness and Eve in the garden because she hadn't fallen yet. And in both instances, because this thought pattern of luring and enticing would not have come from the inside, their temptation had to come from the outside. And in both instances, Satan was directly involved. So when we study those temptations, we get a better look 
at how the process James describes takes place. It's really a fascinating study. We have just a few moments this morning to highlight a few things with one of them. I'm going to turn for just a second here to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now, he says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the word now, when you're reading Hebrew narrative, signals background information that we have to understand to make the story make sense. The author wants us to know this serpent is cunning. He is a deceiver. That's like his arch character in the scripture. He hates and he deceives. He's a liar from the beginning, Jesus said. This is what he does. First, he tries to get Eve to question the goodness of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? No food for you. That's not what God said. In fact, you can even read that, and and in your mind, it doesn't even trigger that that's what the servant is saying. That's not what God said. God said they could eat of every tree of the garden. If you look at God's pronouncement of blessing in the creation account and compare it to the serpent's words, there's a very subtle turn of words to turn God's benevolence into stinginess. There's just one tree in the whole garden they couldn't eat, but everything else, have at it. I've created it for you. Have the abundance. We start complaining. We're always complaining about that one thing that we don't get. And And God says, look at all the things I've given to you. So Eve responds correctly. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Some people make a big deal out of the fact that Eve says, neither shall you touch it, because God didn't actually say that. Oh no, God's adding to the word of God. I even heard people say, uh, you know, this is the first sin, you know, that she adds to the word of God. That's nonsense. Don't listen to that. Uh, What what we see here is, is a woman who is put on the defensive by the arch deceiver of the world. And she is saying, no, you don't want to go near that fruit. God said, don't even touch it or you're going to die. But not only did the serpent question the goodness of God, he then challenges the word of God. You're not going to die. That's a direct attack on the truth. He doesn't start with that. That's second. You see, if Satan can get you to question the character of God, he isn't good. He isn't fair. Why did he do this to us, but he didn't do it to them? He doesn't know my needs. He doesn't really care about me. I know that's what the Bible says, but I I don't feel loved. It is much easier when we start doubting the character of God to begin to disregard the word of God. But then Satan makes his final and devastating appeal. And there's so much more here I want you to know. It'd be fascinating to unpack this someday. But the final appeal is this. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God God says to Eve, you know, don't touch this fruit. And the the serpent says to Eve, God's just holding you back. You think he's good. Sure, he's giving you all this. But it's like God to keep you from what you really want. He's just told you you're going to die to keep you from enjoying this particular delight. You're going to be like him. You're going to know things you never knew before. And I want you to notice in the text, the serpent never tells Eve, okay, go ahead, eat it, just try it. We, we imagine that when we think back in the story in our minds, but the serpent doesn't. He, he never points out to Eve how beautiful the fruit is. He never says that it's delicious. He simply 
has this one idea, it's going to make her like a god, and then he slithers away and lets his deception do its work. Who knows how long the deception worked on Eve, how long it played in her mind, how long Eve contemplated how nice the fruit looked, how it must taste. But later that day, maybe the next day, we don't know. It's a contracted story. The desire that the serpent had woven in her had, had, I should say, woke, had awoken in her, conceived. And she took the fruit and she ate. And death has been with us ever since. And ever since then, the same scenario plays out in our hearts. We don't need an attacker from the outside. We already self-talk. We have this conversation that goes on. I just want to see what this is like. I'll just do this once. No one will know. The Bible doesn't really come out and say it's wrong. I'm not hurting anyone. Other people do this. This is normal. Everybody I know does this. And before we know it, we're reaching for the fruit. Now, how do we face this temptation so that we do not fall into sin? Fourthly, and very briefly this morning, we need to understand the way out of temptation. And that is in verse 16. And I think here that James, in very brief but definite terms, gives us the key. He simply says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The word deceived, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, it's the verb planao, where we get our word planet. I love this verb. It's just really fascinating to think about how it came to mean what it means in the Greek text. The ancients knew that the stars all turned together in the heavens. They were fixed. They have this pattern. They all turn the same way. You can stand out at night and watch this, obviously. But there are these particular stars, and I couldn't really explain them, but they always chose their own path. They wandered away from the path that all the other stars were going. So they were called plane, or wandering ones. And that's why we call them planets to this day. And James is saying, don't go down that path. Don't allow yourself to be led in that direction. Don't be lured off the path of God's righteousness by that conversation that goes on in your mind when your desires are awakened. Don't let yourself be deceived. Do you know what that looks like? It means we stop the conversation in its tracks. We stop entertaining the thought of sin. We say no to sin. That's exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness when he was confronted by the master scammer, the devil. Jesus wasn't just quoting scripture of the devil as if it were some magic incantation to make the devil run away. He was affirming his commitment to the word of God. He was saying, no, I am not doing that. I'm not following. I'm not giving in. And here's why I'm not doing it. And Jesus would always put the scripture in front of the devil. You might think, well, the temptation is too strong. When it comes, I'm going to give in. I can't help it. Don't believe that lie. The kind of thinking that you're, you're going through there is, is itself a deception. God is not going to tell us to do something as his children and then withhold from us the power to do it. The truth is we can keep from being deceived. We can stop deception before it has a chance to lure us by shutting it down, by saying no by God's grace. 
We can also put up barriers in our lives to keep us from entering into temptation to begin with. We can be accountable to others, and we should. We, we sh- need to walk closely with another believer so we can help one another stay on the path. There are dozens of way that we can, ways that we can obey what James is simply saying here. Don't let yourself be deceived. You say, well, does that mean if I do everything I can not to be deceived, I'll never give in to temptation again? Well, you know the answer to that as well as I do. I wish we could say that. But we know our own hearts. We will fall from time to time. And when we do, we will know the forgiveness of God again through our faith in Jesus Christ. But we will grow by God's grace in our ability to say no to deception and thus to the sin if we practice the virtue of shutting down the conversation. This is facing our temptation knowingly. Because of our fallenness, our hearts and minds will try to scam us into fulfilling unrighteous desires. Because of the self-talk that goes on in our hearts and in our minds in a way that is reminiscent of the serpent in the garden, the devil in the wilderness, our deception can be very persuasive. So we need to pray that we live faithfully and ask God to open our eyes. Let's not be naive Let us understand the reality of temptation and the source of temptation and the dynamic of temptation and the way out of temptation. That's living up to the faith that we say that we have embraced. Father, thank you for...